everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spent about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series in Bamidbar is titled Growing Pains, The Journey Towards Responsibility. Each episode explores the manner in which the Parsha reflects the maturation of the people and Moshe's leadership during the wilderness period. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you've deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parshat Balotcha is an action-packed parsha with many different subsections. It opens with a tnufa or waving dedication ceremony of the Levites. It continues with the laws of Pesach Sheni, the second chance opportunity chag for those who were impure and could not bring the Pesach offering. It then discusses the functioning of the cloud and the fire in relation to the movement of the Israelite encampment and the duality of the silver trumpets, which had both a military and ceremonial function. This part of the Parsha is its neat portion. Things make sense. There is order. Recall my conversation with Dr. Tanya White, where we spoke about the Book of Bamidbar's tendency to combine order with chaos. Because after this, there is chaos. We read about a series of complaints. Moshe utterly loses it in response to a particular complaint to the people for meat. God then appoints the 70 elders to help Moshe. Uh, They receive their meat or the slav. And finally, Moshe's siblings speak badly about him, a somewhat enigmatic episode where we're not totally sure what was said, but we have some sad flashbacks to sibling rivalries in the book of Breshit. To unpack this complex Parsha, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Matan's Rashad Beit Midrash and its academic director, Dr. Yael Ziegler. She's the author of multiple Tanakh commentaries and is a senior lecturer at Herzog College and a returning podcast guest. Yael, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Yosefa. It's great to be here. So let's jump right in. This really, this Parsha is is long. It has many different sections. We're not going to talk about all of them today, but why don't we jump into the Parsha, wherever it feels right for you. I think, I guess, the, the most important point to make in this Parsha is what you said in your introduction, which is that there's a, a real pivot in this Parsha, right? So that the, the first section of Bar, including the first section of this Parsha, the first 10 chapters of Bar, are extremely harmonious, right? There's this real sense of creating a machane, right? Creating this camp. And in our parsha, we have this description of the way that they would travel, which uh, what the, the phrase that appears there over and over is al pi Hashem, al pi Hashem yisa'u, the al pi Hashem yachanu, right? Al pi Hashem, al pi Hashem. By the, by the word of God, they travel, and by the word of God, they camp. And that phrase, which appears over and over at the end of chapter 9, at the end of Parakhtet, really gives you this kind of harmonious feel of Am Yisrael's movement from the desert to Eretz Yisrael, right? You know, the last pasuk of Parakhtet, Al Pi Hashem Yachanu, Al Pi Hashem Yisa'u, Et Mishmeret Hashem Shamaru, Al Pi Hashem Biyad Moshe. Everything is just so perfectly harmonious. Everyone's listening to God. Everyone's listening to their leader. Everything seems really just fantastic, and then everything shifts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 the conclusion of Perak Yud makes this point fairly clearly when we have this moment of, which seems to be really direct 
directly leading them into the land with, with these famous psukim. They're famous, of course, because we say them in shul, right, as we're bringing out the Torah. It was when the Aaron is traveling before them, and Moshe says to the Aaron, he seems to be speaking, right? Right? Get up, destroy our enemies, right? They're clearly moving into this mode of Kibusharis of conquering the land, and everything seems so they're so ready for this, and and they're so filled with faith and certainty that God is with them. I will say one thing, just we like these linguistic points. The words Vahibin Soa appear only twice in the entire Tanakh. Once is here, Vahibin Soa Haron. And the second time is in Yoshua Perak Gimel, Vahibin Soa Ha'am. And it was when the nation was traveling. And what, of course, is Yoshua Perak Gimel? It's entrance into the land. So you can't help but feel that had Am Yisrael not gone off the rails here, had they not begun to complain and sin and, and, and express this kind of terrible lack of faith, um, they would have immediately moved towards Yoshua Paragimel, yeah. which then continues with the role of the Aron, not just in leading them into the land, but also in conquering Yericho. Yeah. So there's this sense that we are headed right away for entrance into the land, and that is confirmed by the, the words in Yoshua, and then everything collapses. I think we tend to look at the Miraglim story, the spy story, as what broke this chain. But the truth is that the chain really gets broken right here. I think the 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 Miraglim sort of just solidifies the fact that we're going to be sticking around here for a long time. But the fact that we need to go through an additional maturation process is made very clear at this point in this week's Parsha. Part of it, of course, is this longing for Egypt, which we have here, which is so stunning, this idea of them being in the Midbar, remembering Egypt with great uh, longing. And you know, I I often say it's like the Mrs. Lote mistake, right? So Mrs. Lote is is gazing back at Stoma Amora with with such longing, so she turns into a pillar of salt, and Am Yisrael gaze back at Egypt with this great longing, and they are absorbed into the sands of the desert. They turn into that sort of pillar of salt. It sort of brings this point home for me always that it's not always the best thing to speak your complaints out loud. Meaning we often think we live in a world, there's a lot of self-expression and we encourage people to express all of their feelings and to get it out. But the fact is, is that sort of once we get the ball rolling here, it just, they can't seem to stop. And and the people's negative energy then gets reflected by Moshe's negative energy and then it reflects back into his siblings' negative energy. And, and like this, you know, this is something that if you've ever, you know, existed in a small family structure, you see that. You see how the parent wakes up in a bad mood and then the kids respond and they're nasty, right? And, and everybody sort of... And it takes it takes time for everybody to gather themselves together, and that's sort of the image that I think of whenever I look at at this parsha of everybody just sort of let everything hang out, and that's not necessarily the best way of going about things. Sometimes it's good to keep yourself together for a little bit longer in order for us to achieve that collective national goal that we were really going towards. So we really see that just airing out all of our dirty laundry here to each other was something that ultimately brings brings about another process that has to happen, a uh, process of maturation and of being able to to come together and unify again towards a goal and be able to eventually actually go into Eretz Yisrael.
Yeah. So I, th- I mean, that's, I think, an astute point about the way that this society kind of like begins to become disgruntled, right? I will say one more thing about that, uh, the beginning of the Parsha, which, you know, I talked about as being so harmonious. I would say it's more than harmonious. It's, it's really passionate about its service of God. And, and the way that we see its passion is with the story of, of Pesach Sheni, right? And that, that desire of the Tmeim, of those who were impure and couldn't be part of the eating of Pesach on Pesach. And they come and they complain and they, and they, and they really are upset about not being able to bring the Korban, even though they're exempt from bringing the Korban. Right? That kind of passion, which seems to characterize the people at the beginning of the Parsha, the way that it dissipates is so shocking because it's such a... It's a wonderful moment in Amisrael's history. I think that's a difference. Even if you look, if think back to Pesach, which you know we're right after Pesach as we record this, that's the difference between the Rasha and other children. I mean, the people who are coming with their complaint about Korban Pesach are coming because they want to be part of something, and so. So therefore, the fabric can stay can stay together. But the people who complain in the second half of the parsha are are taking themselves out of the klal, and that's when the fabric starts to really fray. And I think that's the big difference, and that's why that energy is not destructive energy from the korban pesach conversation, but the but the energy that comes out of the the other the other part of the parsha is much more destructive. Yeah, that's a great point. So one of the interesting things that happens at that right before that moment where everything pivots is Moshe's conversation with Chovav ben Ruel. The reason that this is an important discussion is is obviously for a lot of reasons, but partially because the question that we're now leading into is what causes Moshe's crisis of leadership in the next section, and one obvious possible conclusion is is that what contributes or what is a major contributing factor to Moshe's crisis of leadership which he's about to have is the loss of this partnership let's say you know daily partnership of having Chovav with him which causes Moshe to feel once again very alone and that possibility is certainly supported by the fact that when Moshe does complain, he uses a lot of the wording that harks back to his partnership with Yitro in Shemot Perak Yudchet. So for example, when Moshe says in, in Perak Yudalaf Pasuk Yudalid, Lo uchal anochi livadi, laseit et kol amazet ki me many, I can't myself carry all these people. They are too heavy for, for me. We hear echoes of Yitro's words when he comes to Moshe in Shmot chapter 18 and he sees Moshe judging the people all by himself and he says, Ki right? He says to him, Yitro says to Moshe, This is too heavy for you. You can't do this alone. Let me appoint for you, you know, judges to judge alongside of you. So the you know, these factors seem to indicate that Moshe's crisis is partially about uh, the departure of Chovav, if not, if not really precipitated by it. And, and the, the, the final question I would ask, and maybe I'll pose this question to you, is whether or not this is a legitimate, I mean, obviously, emotionally, it's a legitimate crisis, but whether or not the loss of Chovav 
is something which Moshe is, is, is criticized for taking that too much to heart. I mean, certainly right after he turns to Chavav and says, you know, you know the Midbar, you know how to camp here, the very next Pasuk tells us that the, you know, that the Aron is what's guiding them. Like, you know, there's something about the juxtaposition here between Moshe's kind of desperate entreaty to Chovav to stay with him, and the next pasuk, which tells us, but you really don't really need that because God's with you, and the Aron's with you, and even God's response to Moshe's uh, crisis is, "I'll give you seventy men, but they're not the seventy judges that that Chovav, that Yitro was was offering you previously. These seventy men are men of Ruach, right? So." What do you think about that? Okay, so I have a few thoughts. First of all, I think that it's really important to note, I'm not going to maybe answer in order of the comments you just made, but it says in Perik Yud, Pasuk Lamed Gimel, that the role of the Aron is Latur Lahem Menucha, which I don't know why, but I'm only going to say that word now, in connection specifically also to the Miraglim story. And so I think it also sort of connects to this question of is there criticism? Because the role of the Aron was not only to guide them, it was also to to tour or to again create this intimacy uh, between us and our and our surroundings. And so yes, even that because we have this question when it comes to the Miraglim, who sends them, right? Who begins the process? Is it Moshe? Is it God? The difference between the story in Shemot and Devarim. And so I think that's interesting here because we specifically have the fact that the Aron is that which is supposed to sort of, as you said, guide us. I would answer to your question about uh, about Moshe's breakdown and its relationship with the story of Yitro, which is that it we have to ask the question, why does he need anybody? In, in this Parsha. If he already has this system, I'm sort of like taking a step back from your assumption. If he already has a system of judges, which he has set up, then what is the help that he's looking for? As you are suggesting, he's looking for a spiritual partnership. And here I'll add a point that I, I believe I saw it in, in Rabbi Sachs's commentary, which is that there might still be echoes to Moshe assuming that he has to do everything himself, meaning the idea that he ha- he has help uh, when it comes to the judicial process, so that he came to terms with. In his request from Chovav, it seems that Moshe knows very well that he would really like to be doing this with a partner. Um, but when he no longer has that partner, he assumes that there is no other option out there and that he has to do it all himself. He has to be this mother. He has to be this mother, as he complains in this week's Parsha so famously, who can who can feed, who can clothe, right? Who can, who can completely sustain the people. And so when he doesn't have Chovav, he goes back to the mindset of I have to do everything myself and gets incredibly overwhelmed. And I think that that also speaks to, again, this really, really human, this really human tendency to, that we, we have the basic mind frames that we function with and that while Moshe accepted help in the judicial realm, he still had this idea in his head that if it's not, if it's not me doing everything, then it's, it's really all basically going to fall apart. And so he sort of, when, when Chovav leaves him, which apparently for whatever reason was a partnership that he, that spoke to him, that he felt comfortable in, he didn't see any other realistic partner for leadership. And so he goes back to the, 
this this complete and utter stress of assuming he has to do everything himself and then and then breaking down because he says I simply can't do it myself. So it doesn't it doesn't answer your question, but we have this question what kind of partner does he need because he has these other judges that are helping him, but apparently he's looking for some sort of spiritual camaraderie in order to to lead the people and and that when he doesn't have, have that partner who he's identified as the right one anymore, he doesn't really see any other possibility on the horizon and that leads to the breakdown. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that also harks back to the question of what is it that he wants from Chovav when he says, you know, is he looking for some kind of technical partner or, you know, someone who can really guide him just physically? Or is he, as you said, looking for something deeper and a, a more spiritual partnership? I mean, the, the other point that I'll make out linguistically is the kind of wordplay between chanotenu and menucha, yeah. right? Uh, so, you know, he says, uh, I need you, Chovav, to show us chanotenu, our, our, the place where we are going to, you know, to camp. And then, you know, in the next passage, we see that it's the Aron that is teaching us that. And I do think that this indicates to us that, that, that Moshe needs something deeper, that he needs some, some kind of, uh, or he's looking for something, some kind of spiritual partnership. As part of what happens because of Am Yisrael's complaints, Moshe seems in this parsha to really have what seems to be a crisis of leadership, right? And that, I think, is really very shocking for us, especially given that this is the same Moshe that after the story of the Ega HaZahav, you know, refuses to give up on the people and on his role vis-a-vis the people. God says, you know, I'll make you a great nation. And Moshe says, no, no, if you're going to do that, if you're going to kill the people, erase me from your book, right? Moshe seems to be uh, such a deeply devoted leader. And here, Moshe really seems to completely collapse in his in his leadership. And that, I think, is really very striking and requires our attention, right? What is it that goes so wrong here for Moshe that causes this crisis of leadership? I think also it's worth pointing out that these are complaints that we hear in the book of Shemot, and Moshe doesn't melt in response to them and that we hear them again in different versions in the book of Amidbar and Moshe does. Now, this is before Moshe thinks that they're going to be there for 40 years because if you think I've listened to this for 40 years, you could understand why you might have a breakdown. But at this point, Moshe still thinks that this is going to be a very short trip. And so it sort of sharpens the question even more of why is it now that this is bringing an utter, an utter breakdown as opposed to before that, that it didn't. So I'm just strengthening the question here. So, I mean, really, I think the what happens after Moshe um, experiences this complaints of the people is that what we have here, at least linguistically, is all of that tov that Moshe was anticipating and was promising to Yitro immediately at the beginning of Parakut Aleph turns into this repeated word ra, right? There's even a word place with the word ra. So we have vayiam kimitonanim ra be'inei Hashem, right? The complainers were uh, were complaining, in, you know, in a bad way before God. And then you have vativar sham eish Hashem, and you call the place tav-e-ra ki va'ara, even though the word ra is not, it's, the same, uh, it's not the same sounds, word, yeah. it, it, it creates this ra, ra, ra. And then the word ra, the actual word bad, comes up over and over 
in the experience of Moshe's crisis. So, for example, in Pasuk Yud, Uvene Moshe Ra, in Pasuk Yud Aleph, Moshe says to God, Lama Hare Ota Leavdecha, right? Why did you do this bad thing? And what's the bad thing that he did? That he gave Moshe this burden of leading the people. This, you know, this, this burden suddenly for Moshe turned from good into bad. And of course, Moshe's description of his own crisis ends with the word Ra in Pasuk Tevav, where he says, you know, V'im kacha atosali, if this is what you're doing to me, hargini naharog, imatzatichin beinecha, ve'al ar'eh bira'ati, al ar'eh bira'ati, I shouldn't see my own evil, right? So, you know, there's this, experience that Moshe has where everything seems to collapse around him, he does hark back to some of his more primal experiences, right? Where he talks about, he seems to imply certainly that to be a good leader, one has to see oneself as a maternal figure, right? And he says, you know, Hanochi Hariti et kol ha'am tihu, right? Did I conceive them? Did I birth them? You're telling me, sa'eu b'chaykecha, you should bear them in your bosom, right? Ka'asher like a nursing uh, mother bears the nursing child, right? So this all goes back to, I think, really the birth story of Moshe, yeah. where we see the passion and the fortitude and the Of the women who, who brought him into the world. Yeah. yeah, and he's saying, you know, if I want to be this, I have to be like them. He doesn't say, I can't be like them because I'm not a woman, right? He's not talking about gender. He's talking about a certain kind of experience that he learned from his own birth story that he feels that somehow he's lost the ability to continue for whatever reason, right? We mentioned possibly because he's lost the support of Chovav and, you know, they're, they're, you know, possibly because of the behavior of Am Yisrael who don't see the good, but instead, are, you know, see things that they should see as good, only as bad. I think also part of what Moshe is responding to here is that while they may have had these complaints when they were leaving Egypt, he sort of hoped that by now they would have gotten things together, been able to change our perspective. And he hears these complaints for another round of it. And he sort of thinks, well, I clearly don't have the ability to change their minds. I don't have the ability to change their mindset. And what, what both of them need is that they need, they need to grow up and to take responsibility for their own, whether it's their food or, or whatever they're doing in the meat bar. And Moshe also, this I think is if we can look at the mother image for a minute and think about him as a parent, you know, ultimately parents are there to bring their children into adulthood, meaning we have a stage where they're utterly dependent on us and they have no one else. But relatively quickly after the stage of infancy, our role as parents is to really create functioning adults. And I think that the thing that Moshe sort of struggles with here is that he's really great at being the total, absolute infant mother figure, he is good at that. And to sort of save them, take them out, get them to their place, right? But when it comes to the the next stage, which is to bring them into an adulthood, which is much, it's a much more subtle kind of parenting, that that's where Moshe says, I don't know what to do anymore, because this role of being the total complete figure is not one that's that's really fitting anymore for what they need, and that they need somebody who's going to be able to to sort of escort their journey uh, as through as teenagers, right, through, through that next stage. And I think that that's often really how I look at this breakdown of Moshe, 
is that he's really also being challenged to lead differently now than he did when we saw him and met him in the book of, of Shemot. And he sort of had that one down pat, but here he really needs to be something different. And that might also be the beauty of why he essentially is given a village, right? If you need a village to raise to raise a family, the Shivim as Kenim, who we don't really know what they do uh, when when the Torah continues, they're the village, I think, that are essentially supposed to support the maturation of Am Yisrael here because, because one person is not supposed to do that, right? I can think of even, again, a silly example how I'll enlist my, my sister to have a conversation with my child because it'll be far less successful if I have that conversation with her. So like having sort of to be able to, it's not even to, to delegate, but to literally have other people have a hand in this kind of child raising, so to speak, I think is the image I think of when I think about how Moshe is re- responding to the people at this point, or at least how God is telling him he needs to respond. You can't break down anymore and you don't need to be the mother who does everything. It's not realistic and it's not even helpful. At this point, we need many people to be able to put in their two cents to sort of to raise these people there was one other thing that I was thinking when you were talking which is that you know this image of the mother is very much um, about this and I think you're right about this kind of total dependence right and Moshe's next task is to is to lead the people at their more mature stage and maybe the symbol of that is is the meat Right, mm. because you can't eat meat until you're, you're no longer. You're saying they're uh, weaned. Very exactly. nice. Very nice. And so, right after Moshe says, "What you know? Um, uh, am I supposed to be nursing the children? May I and leave basar? Right? Where, like, where, where am I supposed to get basar? I could give them milk. That's easy enough. That's built into my, you know, the the kind of leadership that Moshe has had until now. So that's maybe, and, and you know, the word basar is a very central word in this section and Moshe and and also I think a lot of people talk about the words basar and ruach that are being uh, that are appearing here right the the meat as opposed to the the spiritual sustenance yeah. right which is part of I think what the people are struggling with and what Moshe is struggling with as a leader So I would like to sort of bring this conversation around to sort of our final episode, which is the conversation, the Lashon Hara, the also some sort of internal uh, negative dynamic between Moshe and his siblings. And, you know, and I said in the introduction that it sort of is a little bit of like a drama when you read this, because you sort of go back and you say, wait, but uh, Moshe and Aaron were sort of like these ideal siblings who, you know, we spoke about this in other podcasts who, who aren't jealous of each other. And, and then we throw in the third sibling here, which is, you know, entirely different because we have a dynamic of three and not a dynamic of two. Uh, and, and the question, of course, becomes what actually is happening? What, what, what's the problem here? And, and also, how does the response to this problem, which is Miriam being punished, essentially, and being taken out of the camp temporarily, how, how does this sort of connect, I think, is another important question, to the, the sort of this flow of, of complaint stories that we have in the Parsha? So curious well, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about this. And actually, if you, if you look at the Midrashim, the Midrashim are constantly trying to figure out the context here. Yeah. What went wrong? And the context of the story of Moshe, Miriam, and Aaron, and this 
beautiful sibling relationship, which is going to reappear again as beautiful in, for example, the book of Micha, which talks about these three leaders as being, you know, almost this triumvirate of leadership. Um, it, 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 it kind of throws us, right? Where, where did this come from? And the Midrashim are very much connecting this story back to the previous story in all sorts of ways. One way that I'll pick up on, and there's really so much to say, but we don't have a lot of time left. I will just say one thing, which is that, you know, Moshe until now has been kind of sui generis, right? He was the leader and he was the uh, Navi. And suddenly what has transpired from the last story is that his leadership is his spiritual leadership, his prophetic abilities are now being spread out. And even, you know, certainly the story of Eldad and Medad, which we haven't yet mentioned, but this idea that they have received this ruach, right? This prophetic ability and they are and they're prophesying in the camp and of course you know Yoshua is very offended by this and yeah, there's a bit of a democratization of of power here yeah and so that seems to connect we are saying with Aaron and Miriam now coming out and and having a comment about Moshe I mean he's no longer the unattest you know uncontested leader but they have something to say that that's yeah uh, certainly in a, in a prophetic sense and, mm-hmm. and Moshe's response to Yoshua is Right? Like, I, I, I want everybody to be a Navi. And, you know, God should put his Ruach on, on everyone. He should, he should give his spirit to everyone, his prophetic. By the way, really, I think there's a lot of question as to, you know, this, the nature of this exchange between Moshe and Yosha, who's right, who's wrong. Should he have been a little bit less Anav, a little bit less humble and, and, you know, stood up for his own, um, his own leadership and prophetic leadership. But this whole section really leads me, in my mind, to what I think is one of the most remarkable prophecies in Tanakh, which is in Yoel Perak Gimel, where, um, where Yoel describes the end of days when on that day God will spill out his ruach, his, his prophetic abilities, on everybody, right? Mm-hmm. On on everybody, no matter their status, their economic status, their their tribal affiliation, their gender, their age, right? It's without distinctions. Everybody is suddenly going to have this direct communication with God. And this seems to be what Moshe wants. And all of this, I think, does lead us to this moment where, where Miriam and Aharon question whether or not Moshe is really unique in his prophetic abilities. And um, there's so many questions here that arise, like, for example, who is the Isha Kushit? And, you know, what one possible reading really leads us back to our earlier discussion, which is that the Isha Kushit is Sipora, and now that Chovav has left Moshe. So now they all of a sudden turn their attention to the fact that Tsipora is still around and what is she, you know, what, what is she doing there and what is her role there? So, you know, leaving that aside, because that's, I think, a more complex conversation, the, uh, the, the, the real heart of the discussion here between the siblings about Moshe seems to relate to the question of, is Moshe really a unique prophetic leader or is he not and Moshe doesn't seem to want to weigh in here because as we saw Moshe is perfectly happy for uh, everyone to join him in this role as prophet 
I think that whatever the content was, the result is very clear and that God has to come in here because Moshe, for all different reasons, clearly mostly personality-wise, is, is not willing to take a stand on this question. I think that what is happening here um, takes us all the way back to Moshe's beginnings and maybe some of his potential weaknesses, right? So that Miriam here is, is, is very much, certainly the Midrashim are aware of this, but seems to be acting in her role that she had back in Shemot Perak Bet, mm-hmm. where it almost seems to be a, a response to Moshe's previous words, did I conceive this nation? Did I birth them? And, you know, who is the person who really put themselves out there in order to uh, fight for continuity, for 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 birth. Oh, that's nice. Um, like Miriam comes up here again, how she did in the second chapter of Shmot. You're saying that? That she yeah. sort of shows up here again like that older sister who's concerned about her younger brother. Yeah, and that's why the Midrashim here say, what was she talking about? She was talking about the fact that Moshe separated from his wife because mm-hmm. of prophecy. And what's Miriam's Midrashic role back in Shmot Parakbet? That she um, rebukes her father yeah. for having divorced his mother because of, you know, his uh, fear of bringing children into an evil world. And so Miriam, at least midrashically, retains this kind of consistent role of someone who has this this strength and this determination to, in spite of what's going on around us, whether it's the evil uh, decrees in Egypt or the opposite, the spiritual heights of being a prophetic um, you know, personality, she is very single-minded, at least midrashically, in her determination to keep the world going. And that gives her a certain kind of leadership strength that maybe Moshe, or certainly it seems to be that Moshe is losing. But the, the, the second point I think is much more clear in the shot, right? This was more of a midrashic point. And the second point is that what is Moshe's real weakness at the beginning? It's his peh, right? It, it, at the burning bush, right? Moshe is very, very um, easy with his hand, right? Even, even in, in his first Acts, when he emerges from the palace in Shemot chapter 2, his hand is, is, is very successful. Where Moshe begins to feel a little bit um, inadequate is when he, when he speaks, right? Now, he says this very clearly. And I think, by the way, this is also harks back to what we were saying before about the difference between the kind of all-encompassing an almost absolute leadership of a mother towards her baby. It's who very can't physical. Speak. It's very physical. It's very physical. It's very. Um, it's very unequivocal. Mm-hmm. It's very absolute. And then what happens as children mature? You have to use more persuasive means, and that is a much more complex kind of leadership. And Moshe, from the very beginning, says, "Lo ish devarim anochi." I'm not a person of words. You know, kvad peu kvad lashon anochi. And so here, this whole story revolves around the question of whether or not Moshe's speech has kicked in as a, um, not just an adequate uh, leadership tool, but one that really positions him to be able to to continue to function as this unique leadership figure. Now, God answers it unequivocally, right? God says, right? He, he's the one who is the recipient 
of my words, right? His pet is functioning. Even if he thinks he's inadequate, yes. I don't think he's inadequate. And that's exactly the answer that he gave Moshe at the burning bush. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who gives speech to people? Now, the last point that I'll make, and also it's, it's in response to what you were talking about before in terms of the hierarchy, is this takes me back about 30 years ago, even maybe a little bit more, to when I uh, read an article by Martin Buber about the chiastic structure, you know, uh, the chiastic structure, which is an ABC, CBA structure. And it was really the very beginning of my academic um, uh, explorations in, in Bible, in learning Tanakh. And he wrote about this parak, and he said the word daber appears in this parak seven times in a chiastic structure. And this was actually the moment that I I was convinced that the chiastic structure is a, a really important tool to use in learning Tanakh. And he shows how the word daber, it's not just placed chiastically, but concentrically. In other words, it's seven times, which is, of course, a key word, often appears seven times, but it has a middle, okay? So he says, if, if, you, look in, if you look in the psukim, the first time that we have the word daber, it's vatidaber Miriam ve'aron Moshe. They speak against Moshe. And the seventh time that the word daber appears is in pasuk where it's why weren't you afraid of speaking against Moshe? The second time the word Daber appears is when Miriam and Aaron say in Pasuk Bet, Harak ach bimoshe diber Hashem. Was it only Moshe that God spoke to? And God's response to that is, in the second to last time that we have the word Adaber in Pasuk Chet is, Pe'el it may not be that I only speak with Moshe, but I speak uniquely with Moshe. The third time that uh, Miriam and Aaron use the word daber in Pasuk Bet, it's halogambanu diber. Did God not speak also with us? And in response to this, we have in Pasuk Vav, mm-hmm. where God says, Bachalom adaber bo. So this is all very neat and nice, but what I thought was really remarkable goes back to this hierarchical piece that you mentioned previously, which is that the middle use of the word daber, right stuck there in the middle of the structure, is in Pasuk Vav, when mm-hmm. God says, Shimuna divarai, listen to my word, right? The whole discussion about who's a better prophet and who's a better leader and who is, you know, uh, really qualified to be the leader of Am Yisrael, it it's completely rendered moot by God's words saying, I decide this. I chose Moshe. I chose him at the burning bush. I chose him knowing that he felt that his uh, speech was, was not adequate. And I decided, presumably part of, I think the story is because of his humility, because he is the anav me'od mikol adam asher adama, which we also see at the burning bush, right? Because of all of that, God says, I choose who I speak to, and therefore this whole discussion is superfluous. You know, I think that maybe with that, as we close the conversation, it really makes me think about this idea of a flawlessness versus perfection, and that Moshe knew from the beginning what his strengths and his weaknesses were, and and so did God, and no leader of any institution or any people is ever going to be 
100% perfect. And I even would say in an intimate relationship with a spouse, right? We all have our flaws and our imperfections. And and the the main point is choosing the best person, knowing those flaws, who can do that job. And I think that in this Parsha, you know, we've, we've, I've noticed, you know, if I could think of a milam ancha, a, a late word of our conversation, we've sp- spoken about Moshe's, his flaw or, or his breakdown. And it, what's so important to me to sort of like come back to at the end of this conversation is to say that God's seal is the most important part here because no matter how much Moshe breaks down or no matter how much his leadership may not be completely what the people need at this moment, God chose him knowing that these were going to be the the pitfalls of his leadership, but that even knowing that he was the best choice and God didn't choose Miriam and God didn't choose Aharon and it's Moshe who's supposed to be here to do this job. And so I think that that's also just this life lesson for me always is that we know of our own flaws, of our own imperfections, and those of the people that are around us. But the thing that we have to make sure is that the right people are still in, in the right positions that they're supposed to be in, and that they have the strengths that are necessary. They're never going to have everything because no one person can have everything, but they are still in the right place. Now, of course, that kind of divine seal is 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 very reassuring when it comes from God himself, and we live in a world and in a life where we don't have those divine seals. But, but that piece is just important for me to also sort of end with, as we've spoken so much about sort of the flaws of Moshe's leadership, is that exact point, that God says, this is who I chose. And everything was on the table when we married each other, right? He knew what, was, what wasn't what was perfect. I knew it wasn't perfect. But it's okay, because this was this is the best choice that was there that was there for this, this point in time. Does that make sense? I, I love that point. I would take it even one step further just to conclude our discussion, which is that Malbim says, when, when Moshe says, you know, you know that, that God didn't choose Moshe in spite of these imperfections. He chose Moshe because mm-hmm. of these imperfections. I think that there's something, I mean, the Malbim was saying something specific, but I think that there's a broader uh, context here, which is that human beings are constantly being reminded that we are flawed and and that these flaws are 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 part of our humanness and it's part of our our goal is to see and to be an anav and to be a person of humility even as we strive to be great and perhaps the best example of this is Arelut, uh, right? You know, God creates human beings not with a perfect body, right? But with a body that needs to be circumcised. And of course, Moshe describes himself as Aral Sfataim, right? I am of uncircumcised lips. So there's something about the way that God creates human beings and creates human leaders and, you know, and, and, and develops these stories about people which are designed to make us remember our flaws even as we strive to be, to engage in some otherworldly transcendent relationships and, and, and activities. And, and the fact that this point is being made about Moshe so that ultimately what it comes back to is the reason he was chosen is because he is enough. He recognizes his flaws even as he's chosen for the most pivotal role in Am Yisrael's history, perhaps, you know, certainly in the Torah. I think that's a really important point, and I want to thank you for this conversation, Yael. Thank you, Yosefa. 
I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.